You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. So open our Bibles together to the scripture reading this afternoon. Romans 3, 1 to 26. This reading is in connection with Lord's Day 23 this afternoon as we consider the doctrine of justification. And Romans 3 is the often regarded as the classic statement of that doctrine, especially verses 21 and following. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. As it is written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result? Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Thus far, our scripture reading, may God bless it for us. 
So as I already mentioned this afternoon, we are considering Lord's Day 23 and what we confess from the Scriptures in that Lord's Day. Let's now read that together. Lord's Day 23 of the Hatterberg Catechism. But what does it help you now that you believe all this? In Christ, I am righteous before God and heir to life everlasting. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all God's commandments, have never kept any of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace, imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. He grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin, and as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept this gift with a believing heart. Why do you say that you are righteous only by faith? Not that I am acceptable to God on account of the worthiness of my faith, for only the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ is my righteousness before God. I can receive this righteousness and make it my own by faith only. Beloved congregation of Jesus Christ, the battle to abolish slavery in the British Empire consumed nearly 46 years of a man's life. The battle began in 1787 and was not won until 1833. It took parliamentarian William Wilberforce 12 attempts before he was able to see the abolition of the slave trade in 1807. And it took another 26 years after that until 1833 that he was able to see slavery done all to, done away with altogether in the British Empire. William Wilberforce is a picture of endurance and perseverance, continuing to press forward, even when the situation looked hopeless. He was a man of conviction and extraordinary patience. But what motivated him? What motivated William Wilberforce in his battle to abolish slavery. What was the fuel that kept his engine running for those 46 long years? William Wilberforce was a Christian. In his book, A Practical View of Christianity, he explained how true Christianity is rooted in the great doctrines of the Bible about sin and about Christ and about faith. He insisted that getting doctrine right was the key to the personal and political reformation of morals. And at the center of all of that, for William Wilberforce, was the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Wilberforce argued that when people don't give a rip about doctrine in general... And when they're not impressed and they're not gripped by the biblical doctrine of justification in particular, we ought not to be surprised when there's so much immorality. There's so much of a a lack of concern for society and for our neighbors. 
For Wilberforce himself, this was what drove him forward. He was impressed by God's grace for sinners. He was gripped by the doctrine of justification. He was in awe of God and of His mercy in Christ. By God's grace, this is what kept Wilberforce going in his battle to abolish slavery. The biblical doctrine of justification by faith alone not only is a powerful motivator to Christian living, it is, but it's also rightly been called the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. If you get justification wrong, or if you ignore it, or you minimize it, all kinds of other problems result. However, if we follow the Bible's teaching, if we enthusiastically embrace it, all sorts of blessings result. This is indeed a central Christian doctrine. And that's why it's good that we can again consider it this afternoon using Lord's Day 23 of the Catechism as our guide. We're going to see that the Bible presents this doctrine in a particular way as a courtroom drama. But this is a real-life courtroom drama. And it involves the justification of the ungodly. And as we see this drama played out, we'll consider the judge, the accused, the defense, and then finally, the verdict. The first thing we have to realize is that when the Bible speaks about justification, it does so almost always with legal language. In fact, the word justification itself comes out of the world of the courtroom. It is, in fact, a legal term. Like any courtroom in action, this one too has any number of different figures who have their own specific role and function. And so, for instance, the Bible tells us that there is a judge. In Romans 3, verse 6, we read from Romans 3, and in verse 6, God is said to be the one who will judge the world. In 3, verse 19, the whole world will be held accountable to God. And in verse 20, God is the one who makes the declaration of righteous or unrighteous. God is the one who renders the verdict. We call such a person a judge. And while the Son and the Holy Spirit are involved as well, the work of God as judge in this courtroom is particularly the work of God the Father. And that's apparent in verse 26 of Romans 3, when Paul writes that God is the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. When he says this, he makes a distinction between Jesus and the one who justifies. And that same distinction is found elsewhere too. For instance, in 2 Corinthians 5.19, God the Father is the judge behind the bench in this courtroom. And that's a problem. That becomes a problem for us. Because this divine judge is holy, holy, holy. That means that he's completely set apart from sin. His holiness extends to his justice and righteousness. He will always do what is right. He will always carry out what is good. 
His actions will always be consistent with His righteous character. If you offend Him, there's going to be trouble. If you break His law, watch out. Psalm 7, 11-13 lays out very vividly what the problem is. Psalm 7, 11-13 God is a righteous judge, a God who expresses His wrath every day. If he does not relent, he will sharpen his sword. He will bend and string his bow. He has prepared his deadly weapons. He makes ready his flaming arrows. In other words, if you get on the wrong side of this judge, he'll be on the war path. Now, it's true that the Catechism doesn't explicitly mention that God is the judge in regards to justification. But it is there in those two words that occur in each question and answer of Lord's Day 23. The two words, before God. And the next Lord's Day expands on that. Question 62 says, but why, but why can our good works not be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of it? And then the answer says, because the righteousness which can stand before God's judgment. And so on. Standing before God is standing before God's judgment. Before God as judge. As far as the accused are concerned, well, that's each and every one of us. We have all been indicted, brought up on charges before the judge of heaven and earth. And those charges are threefold according to the teaching of Scripture summarized in the Catechism. In the first place, we're accused of grievously sinning against all of God's commandments. As James says in 2 verse 10 of his letter, if you've broken one of God's commandments, you've broken them all. Furthermore, we don't just sin by accident, but we sin willingly and intentionally. By nature, we love sin. And more than that, sin is not just what we do. Sin is who we are. We have a sinful nature, and it's part of who we are. A few weeks ago, I preached on Mark 7. You remember that the Lord Jesus gave a whole list of sins that proceed from the heart. The heart is sinful. The heart is part of who we are. So sin is not just what we do, not just external actions. It's also who we are. In other words, it's infected our very being. Second, we're accused of having never kept any of God's commandments. In some way or other, we've constantly broken each and every commandment. We are lifelong sinners. And finally, we're accused of still being inclined to all evil. Even though we believe in Jesus Christ, even though we have been born of the Spirit, born from above, we still have an inclination to evil. We remain committed to it. As much as we hate it, we are committed to it. And at, But as our Christian life proceeds, we do grow less and less committed to it. Now, these accusations have a basis in what the Bible says in passages like Romans 3. And we need to remember that the letter to the Romans is a letter to a Christian church. Paul was writing to the believers in the church at Rome. 
And he reminds the believers in verses 9 to 18 that the law of God accuses each and every one of us. He asks, are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then he gives this whole string of quotations from all these Old Testament passages, establishing the fact that we are the accused. And these are serious charges, brothers and sisters. And we ought not to downplay them. Because if we do that, if we downplay them, we may lose sight of how good the good news really is. We may lose sight of how wonderful a Savior we really have. Remember, the good news is only so good because the bad news is so bad. And as we consider ourselves as the accused, and as we reflect on the charges against us, we also have to think about the consequences of a guilty verdict. Put briefly, a guilty verdict results in a death sentence. An eternal death sentence. If you're found guilty of these charges, you will be thrown from the courtroom into a lake of burning fire. And this only underlines the seriousness of these charges, of the accusations that stand against us. We need a high-powered defense to come to our assistance. And praise God, we have such a defense in Jesus Christ. He is the righteousness from God to which the law and the prophets testify. As Paul says in Romans 3.21, Jesus Christ brings to the judge His perfect satisfaction, righteousness and holiness. Our Savior makes the best possible defense for us. He comes forward and He says in the courtroom, Yes, my client has grievously sinned against the law. But I have paid the penalty. In my suffering, in my death, I bore the curse. I took the punishment that he deserves, that she deserves. I did it for her, for him. I did it in their place. This is Christ's perfect satisfaction. And he goes on and he says, yes, my client has never kept any of the commandments. True. But I have lived a life of perfect obedience. I never broke any of the commandments. Not one. And I did it for him. I did it for her. I did it in their place. This is Christ's perfect righteousness. And as he draws to the close of his defense, he says, yes, and it is true that my client is still inclined to all evil. However, I am not, nor have I ever been. I offer to the judge my pure heart in his place, in her place. This is Christ's perfect holiness for us. And as we, the accused, as we hear this defense, we must all say, Yes and amen. He did bear the curse for me. Yes, He did keep the law for me. Yes, Jesus has a pure heart for me. This is the essence of faith, don't you see? Resting and trusting in Christ and His perfect work of redemption for us. 
Faith means that we rest in Christ. We say, no, I cannot be right with God on the basis of what I do. Resting in Christ means to stop. Stop trying to measure up for God. Resting in Christ means that we stop seeing the law as a way to earn our salvation, to earn our standing before God. Resting in Christ means that we lean entirely on Him. Faith also means trusting in Him. We say, yes, He is my Savior, and I rely entirely on His satisfaction, His righteousness, and His holiness. I have no other hope besides Him, besides Christ. You see, the accused must embrace the defense. If there's to be a way out of the accusations and the justice that must follow, we have to make that defense our own. And the way we do that is by faith. Loved ones, this afternoon our God is calling us again to be sure that we, that you individually, that you and you and you, that all of us are believing in Christ, resting and trusting in Him alone. Because faith in Christ is the only way that this courtroom drama can possibly have a happy ending. However, that doesn't mean that faith is what makes us acceptable to God. The Catechism emphasizes that point in question and answer 61. Faith is not what makes us acceptable to God. Rather, it's only the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ that can save us. Faith itself, listen carefully, faith itself doesn't save us. But no one will be saved without faith. No one will be saved without faith because faith is the instrument or the tool by which we take hold of the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. John Calvin used the illustration of a clay pot. Just a common clay pot used to hold gold and silver coins. The clay pot, it's not valuable. It's nothing of special worth. It's not the clay pot that makes the owner rich, but rather what's inside it. In the same way, we're not saved by our faith as such, but by Christ, who is the content or the object of our faith. We can have a part in Christ's riches only through faith. By faith, we are grafted into Christ and we share in all His riches and treasures. And so faith itself doesn't save us, but no one will be saved without faith. Each one of us needs to personally embrace Jesus Christ and His perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness. And that brings us to the glorious conclusion of this courtroom drama, the verdict. In Lord's Day 23, we find that verdict in those words, I am righteous. In answer 59, and God's imputation and grant of all the merits of Christ in answer 60. And the fact that in answer 61, I am acceptable to God. 
I am righteous. I am acceptable. The verdict is in. And the judge has declared me not guilty. And not only that, but the judge also goes further because he says, not only am I not guilty, but I am positively righteous. You have to understand that distinction. There's not guilty, but then there's also being positively righteous. He will regard me as someone who has not only not broken the law, but someone who has positively kept everything in the law. So it's not just that I haven't been caught breaking the law, but that the judge knows everything I've been up to, and it's all good in his eyes. This verdict is rendered because of Christ and His defense. Romans 3.24 says that we are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Our justification has its basis entirely in Christ and what He has done for us and in our place. So as Paul says in Romans 3.27, there is no room for boasting. Our salvation is entirely of grace alone. We are justified entirely and only by Christ's merits, contributing nothing of ourselves. Justification means that God declares us to be right with Himself. That's the basic meaning, the basic definition of the word justification. And the result is something wonderful. It results in our being adopted into God's family. That's implied in answer 59 when it says that we are heirs to life everlasting. Now if we tease that out, heirs to life everlasting, if we tease that out, it means that once the trial is over, the judge comes down from his bench, he takes off his robe, And he says, welcome to my family. Isn't that wonderful? We go from the courtroom to the family room. God is is no longer the judge. He's no longer just the father of Jesus Christ. He becomes our father. Through the verdict of justification, we become his dearly loved adopted children. On a human level, sometimes adopted children are treated differently from natural children. The natural children receive a different sort of love. They have a different place in the family. And the adopted children feel like they're really not part of the family, at least not in the same way. That doesn't always happen, but it can and does and has happened in earthly families. But in God's family... That doesn't happen. Ever. The adopted children have the same rights and privileges as the natural child. As God's only begotten Son. Through Christ, because of Christ, and what He's done for us, we are as loved by God as His only true and natural Son. God cannot love us more. And He will certainly never love us less. And we have the promise of an inheritance. The new heavens and new earth are waiting for us. 
an inheritance in which we will be experiencing a family reunion. A family reunion like no family reunion we've ever experienced in this age. This is the biblical doctrine of justification. And holding to it, enthusiastically embracing it, it lifts up our hearts. It gives us wonderful comfort. It lifts up our hearts and our thoughts to God in praise. When we consider this doctrine, we realize what an amazing God we have. And we're led to be more impressed with Him. And like William Wilberforce, we long to magnify His worth with everything in our lives. Everything in our being. And that being true, we should also be on our guard against anything that would endanger this precious doctrine. This afternoon, I just want to mention one popular false teaching that endangers the biblical doctrine of justification. It's this idea that Christians are not sinners. There are those who say that Christians are only saints. They say we cannot identify ourselves as sinners and we should not see ourselves as sinners. They insist that the Reformed teaching that Christians are both sinners and saints at the same time They say that that doctrine is at best wrong and at worst it is a terrible and destructive lie. Well, there are a number of different ways that we can address this issue. We could talk about the passages where Paul says that he is a sinner, where he says he is a wretched man or the worst of sinners. We could talk about the history of this idea. And there are other ways too. This afternoon... I want to point out that denying that Christians are at the same time sinners and saints endangers the doctrine of justification. You cannot deny that Christians are sinners and saints without also drawing into question the doctrine of justification. That doctrine found in Scripture and reflected in Lord's Day 23. Now let me explain how that works. And you'll have to listen carefully because it would be easy to miss something important here. There are a number of steps that we're going to follow and each one is critical in understanding this. A key passage is 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. I'll read that again. God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. That passage, 2 Corinthians 5.21, describes a key part of our justification, what we call imputation. You see it in Lord's Day 23, right? God imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. It's there in Lord's Day 23 too. Christ's righteousness, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21, was imputed to us. It was accounted to us by God. Our sin was imputed to Christ. It was accounted to Christ by God. 
There's an exchange that takes place. And the result of this exchange is that we are declared right with God. We have justification. Now, the important thing to realize here is that Christ remained of Himself righteous. Intrinsically righteous. Jesus Christ never sinned. But yet God accounted our sins to Him in the atonement. Our sins were imputed to Him. He became in God's sight what He was not. God made Him to be sin for us. That's the clear teaching of 2 Corinthians 5.21. Now, I mentioned there's an exchange, right? So on the flip side of this exchange, there's us. We are not of ourselves righteous, but are rather sinners. Remember, sin is not just what we do, it's who we are. But yet, God accounted Christ's righteousness to us. His righteousness was imputed to us. We became, in God's sight, what we are not. In Him, we have become the righteousness of God. Of ourselves, intrinsically, we remain sinners. But in Christ, God accounts us as righteous. And that's what's behind those two little words in the catechism in answer 60. Those two little words, as if. Right? As if I had never had nor committed any sin. And then, as if I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. Those two words, as if, capture what happens in imputation. God accounts us He considers us to be what we are not in ourselves. Just as he considered Christ to be what he was not in himself. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. That's crucially important to understand. And closely related to that is what we find in Romans 4 verse 5. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God justifies the wicked who have faith. You see the problem there? If you deny that Christians are both sinners and saints, it is only those who have faith that are justified. It is only Christians But yet, Paul says that God justifies the wicked. Or in other translations, it says God justifies the ungodly. God justifies ungodly believers. God justifies ungodly believers. In this life, we are at the same time sinners and saints. That's not to say that we're not being sanctified that we're not being changed. Once we are justified, once God accounts us as righteous in His sight, change begins taking place within us. Absolutely. Justification initiates the process of sanctification. And that's a process that takes place through the course of a lifetime. 
But it's only in the hereafter that we're glorified. That we live, leave sin totally behind. And are only saints. That we are entirely new nature creatures. In theology, the only people who deny that Christians are at the same time saints and sinners, the only people who deny that are people who have a problem with the doctrine of justification. Loved ones, that that has to be a warning for us. There's a direct connection between these two. And thinking that you can have one without having the other, it's short-sighted, to say the least. And loved ones, I wouldn't tell you all of this if I didn't think it to be important. As I mentioned, there are a lot of authors and a lot of others who run into trouble on this point, and it's sad to say, but they've confused a lot of people. Let there be no confusion about this. The wonderful truth is that we are justified in God's sight. As Paul says in Romans 8 verse 1, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are totally right in God's sight. That's going to be all you're going to take away from this this afternoon. Great. But yet, let's go further. But yet, we also have the remnants of a sinful nature with which we all have to struggle. And it's that which leads the apostle elsewhere to identify himself as a sinner. He does that so that he would remain humble, setting an example of humility also for us. Humility which leads us to keep on seeing our need for Christ. We never stop needing Him. We never stop needing the Gospel. And remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18. You remember that parable? Who did the Lord Jesus commend? He commended the tax collector who cried out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He said, our Lord Jesus said, that it was this man that went home justified. A believer who knew himself to be a sinner, who recognized his constant need for God's grace. And so Jesus says, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. We are justified in Christ. We are right with God right now. But the full measure of our redemption, brothers and sisters, it's not here yet. The drama is not over. There's another chapter that's coming. And recognizing that we remain sinners in this life, we constantly look to Christ. We never take the gospel for granted. We look to Christ and we also groan inwardly, as Paul says in Romans 8, And we call out to God for the last day, the day when faith shall become sight. As Paul says in Romans 8, 24 to 25, who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. And we wait eagerly. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine of justification is at the heart of the gospel. It's about how a just God declares sinners to be right with Himself through the merits of Jesus Christ. It's at the heart of the drama of our redemption. Truly it is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. 
when we understand and we believe and we embrace this doctrine, it truly gives fuel for our thankfulness. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. We thank you that in him we are righteous before you, and that we've also been adopted into your family and are heirs to life everlasting. As we've been considering this doctrine of justification, Father, we realize how wonderful you are. We're more impressed with you and your grace. Of ourselves, we are sinners unworthy of any gift or blessing. But because of Christ, we have received everything from you. Father, thank you. Please continue working in us with your Spirit so that our faith would be strengthened, so that our awe for you would only abound, so that our lives would reflect the awe that we have for you and our desire to amplify your glory, to magnify your worth. There is none like you, O God. And so we praise you for the good news and for every other good gift from your hand. We pray in Jesus Christ, our only Savior. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.